Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before we get started, I want to welcome Audio-Technica as presenting partner for this season of Let's Talk About Sects. I've been working with their equipment from the very beginning of the show, and like many podcasters, started with an 80-20-20 USB mic, which has served me very well. The kind folks at Audio-Technica upgraded me to a BP-40, which they tell me is also perfect for screaming into if you're in a heavy metal band. If you're not a podcaster, they have some really great options like noise-cancelling headphones, some cool wireless headphones, or if you love to listen to vinyl like I do, they've got very nice turntables as well. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. The Children of God, later known as the Family, became notorious for their practice called flirty fishing. They believed in bringing up their children to have no inhibitions around sex, but the ramifications of their approach to this would echo through the generations as trauma, and result in a shocking murder-suicide committed by the very son prophesied as the prince who would lead them through the end times. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. This is the second part of a two-part episode, so if you haven't listened to part one already, I recommend you go back and do that first. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also deals with incest and physical and sexual abuse, including of minors. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. In 1984, David Berg's daughter, Deborah Davis, published a book about her experiences, which she called The Children of God, The Inside Story co-written with her husband, Bill Davis, who had left the sect with her in 1978. The book revealed that she had rejected her father's advances at the age of seven and twelve, then again when he crowned her a queen in his royal family, and tried to sleep with her when she was 26, telling her that she needed to prove her loyalty to God and to him as her king through the law of love. Her refusal did not go unpunished, and soon David announced that his younger daughter Faithy was the rightful queen, as she had never refused him. Deborah wrote, My father is arrogant, continually inventing new ways to commit evil. He is heartless, having lost all natural affection. He no longer loves those he should. He is motivated by a lust for power and sensual pleasure. To him, love is lust. He states that God is sex, He thinks nothing of taking wives from their husbands or sending fathers away from their children, never to see them again. He has proudly proclaimed, I don't like that word married anymore either. People in the movement are now mated for convenience's sake. When one tires of another, move on. And as for the children, 
God will take care of them. In June 1985, a 1,350-page book called The FN Encyclopedia was published, containing a collection of articles from Family News Magazine, an internal newsletter distributed to members. An article by Jeremy Spencer's first wife, Fiona, that was originally published in 1982 was selected for the encyclopedia. It included the following. Where we live at MWM, music with meaning, we do have a lot of fellowship, a lot of sharing, and the children are very fortunate to be able to partake of this. As I said before, it's easy for our little ones to share and stay with one another, even make love if they can. They're all small and they can manage it. But when they get 10, 11, 12 and on, our children like to share with the adults. I haven't really heard of a bad experience in our family with our children sharing. I feel that almost all of our family, the brethren are really understanding, very gentle, very loving and there is no need to fear for the children and they should be really free to love and share with the other brethren just as we do. When they have sperm, when they start their period, that's the testing time. How much do you trust the Lord? How much do you believe his promises, his blessings, etc.? Being worried like our parents, the older generation are watching us, their grandparents. Or not caring, only wanting to flow with the spirit, with this love, helping the children to be really free and helping them to bring forth fruit. Former member Jemima Farris told Jeff Truesdale from People magazine, As a 12-year-old we were placed on sharing schedules, which was a rotation with different men. I know I've read you numerous accounts like these from a variety of sources to help illustrate the group's perspective and activities, particularly pertaining to child abuse, which of course they didn't see as such. Although it's not fun to hear, I think it's important to be able to form a view of the group based on material from sect publications and first-person accounts rather than some of the other commentary around. In 1986, the family announced that its guidelines had been updated and that anyone who had sexual contact with children would be excommunicated. Though at the July and August 1986 teen training camp in Mexico, there are allegations that David's daughter Faith Berg sexually abused numerous teenage boys in attendance. Please note that she has never been charged with any criminal offence. She also became a repeat student in the Victor program, more about that shortly. As in spite of her ongoing loyalty to her father, there was an internal battle to be part of his succession plan while he was getting on in years. The following is from a later statement by family spokesperson Claire Borowick. Due to the fact that our current zero-tolerance policy regarding sexual interaction between adults and underage minors was not clearly stated in our literature published before 1986, We came to the realisation that during a transitional stage of our movement, from 1978 until 1986, there were cases when some minors were subject to sexually inappropriate advances. This should not have happened. In hindsight, it became clear that potential problems arising from our liberal stance towards sexuality should have been anticipated and stringent rules established earlier on. This was corrected officially in 1986, when any contact between an adult and minor, any person under 21 years of age, was declared an excommunicable offence. All previous literature underwent careful scrutiny to ensure that it was in line with this position and questionable publications were expunged. The policy that has been in place since 1986 has remained unchanged and infractions result in excommunication from the group. End quote. Former members say that this was a smokescreen, and that the abuses just continued with greater secrecy around them. Sam Adjamian wrote, We know that sex of adults with minors was still going on with Berg and the group's leadership into the 90s. Zerby herself had sex with her son Davidito after 1986. Ed Preeb, who had become part of the inner circle by this stage, later wrote of his involvement in proofing a four-page denial of child abuse at the behest of David and Karen in 1988, quote, It was a despicable publication, and I am thoroughly ashamed that I had anything to do with it. In the late 1980s, the family ran a number of teen training camps, supposedly designed to re-inspire and re-educate teenage members who were becoming disengaged with the sect. But attendees described the re-education regime as involving hard labour and physical abuse. 
David's 1988 text entitled The School Vision reflected this focus on the youth, as many of the original children of God were no longer children themselves, and their own children were clearly not embracing the message as their parents had. So-called Victor Camps were supposedly for counselling of teens via the Victor Program, which was a program to re-educate those who were having doubts or to treat those who were showing signs of mental instability. One of the most notorious was situated in Macau. In a later court case, Justice Sir Alan Hilton Ward said that The truth is that these children were there to have their spirits broken by whatever means it took, and loving-kindness was not the primary means deployed. These children were the bad apples who were removed from the bosom of the family for fear of contaminating those who were more amenable to the regime. They were dispatched to a punishment camp for punishment. I have no doubt that within their own definition, the shepherds there did act in love when handing out their punishments. Their failure to appreciate that their actions were nonetheless abusive to the children in their care is frightening. Teenager Ben Farnsworth spent time at Macau being re-educated, then left the family and moved to Hong Kong. Some months later, in 1992, he died by suicide after jumping from a building. Upon his death, Karen wrote to Ben's father, Tom Farnsworth, quote, We think this is going to have a tremendous powerful effect on our teens worldwide. So even if Ben's life wasn't a very good example, maybe even his death wasn't either, the result of that is going to be tremendous. I'm sure that's probably one of the big reasons why the Lord allowed it to help all of our other teens worldwide be warned and be shaken and be in fear of ever going to the system and getting involved with its evil. Former member Sam Adjamian described an example of an experience of the camps in his self-published book as follows. Upon entering the Victor camps, all personal belongings were confiscated. Punishments were frequent, hard, and for the slightest reason. There were public beatings. They were made to wear clothing aimed to humiliate them. There was food and sleep deprivation. They would make them do hard labour and not allow them to wear gloves so that their hands became bloody and swelled. They were put on prolonged silence restriction, meaning they were forbidden to speak to anybody except if spoken to by their leader. They were made to carry large cardboard signs around their neck that said, Don't talk to me, I am on silence restriction. Their mouths were taped over or they were made to wear surgical masks. They were isolated in locked, small, upper attics or rooms for days or weeks or longer. There are stories of children being on silence restriction for months at a time, or even a year-long stretch, as well as being starved of food for a week or more. The Macau Victor Camp sprung up after Mary Berg had been sent there following her experiences in the Philippines, and more youth expressing doubts started arriving following her initial punishment of being locked up in a room for six months. It was after this camp that further Victor camps in other locations were modelled. By 1987, flirty fishing had been discontinued. The family website stated that this was, quote, to emphasise other means of ministering the word of God to others, as well as to take advantage of opportunities to reach more people than the very personalised ministry of FFing allowed. At that time as well, the plague of AIDS had begun its rampage through the world, another indication that it was time to reconsider family policy of allowing sexual interaction outside our communities, end quote. David had prophesied that another great tribulation would occur in 1989 and had produced an illustrated publication in 1983 called Heaven's Girl, with a central young female character named Maria, apparently a teenager based on his granddaughter Mary. The publication was circulated with the end-time prophetess Maria positioned as a role model for children, and it depicted her giving herself over to a group of soldiers who wanted to gang-rape her, before feeding her to the lions, during the tribulation. Again, 1989 came and went with no sign of the Great Tribulation. In 1991, one of David's letters was circulated entitled, Consider the Poor. In it, he encouraged his followers to minister to such people as migrant workers, refugees, illegal aliens, minorities, unwed mothers, prostitutes, the neglected youth, drug addicts, the physically handicapped, and those in correctional institutions, prisons, orphanages, and old folks' homes. 
I'm always surprised at how many of the Bible-based religious groups I look at for this podcast manage to neglect the Bible's teachings about looking after the poor, and it's fair to recognise that the family was not one of these. Correspondence went out to all family homes in June 1991 entitled The Pub's Purge, detailing various pages that were to be destroyed across family publications. Quote, We are sorry to have to burden you with such an unpleasant task as burning and cutting pages out of our own books, but as evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, particularly our antichrist enemies, we feel that it's definitely worth the time, trouble and sacrifice to purge these publications in order to do all that we can to protect ourselves and our precious little ones. Your help and cooperation is not only very appreciated, but is also very much needed and in fact required for the sake of your own children and their and your protection, as well as our families everywhere. So please do it now. So serious is this pub's purge that failure to comply with these instructions will result in your excommunication from our fellowship. Then in 1992, police raids of family properties occurred in Australia and France, with similar raids to follow in Argentina, Brazil, England and Spain. In Australia, 57 children were put into protective custody in raids of communes in the Sydney suburbs of Kellyville, Cherrybrook and Glenhaven in May. In France, a month later, the same thing happened when 12 communal homes were raided, with 40 children put into custody and many adults arrested. In the Spanish raid, 22 children were put into custody and many parents were arrested. And Robert McFarland wrote in a paper for the Journal of Psychohistory that an Argentinian raid by 180 police found 268 underfed and poorly clothed children along with literature promoting sex between adults and children and videotapes showing parents having sex with their children. In the UK, while no arrests were made, a three-year investigation by Scotland Yard brought out concerns around health risks in the communes with at least 116 children having died over a 10-year period in family homes across the south of England, Leicestershire and Glasgow. In the Argentinian case, Mary Berg provided a statement alleging that all the men in Music With Meaning, being Jeremy Spencer, Simon Black and Simon Peter, had sexually abused her when she was nine years old. She was also filmed at that age dancing naked in a videotape that was provided to the court. A former member told Robert McFarland about the family's approach to children and sex, whereby, quote, If anyone refused to have sex, she said, they were caged, with no water and no toilet facilities, until they changed their mind. Berg preached that infants should be initiated into sex right after birth, so most children thought that this was part of growing up. The result, she said, was that they constantly acted out sexually. The children that were rescued from the group in Spain, for instance, soon had to be isolated in a separate school because they kept on trying to initiate sexual intercourse with other children and adults in the regular school into which they were first put. But subsequently, all charges were dropped and the children were returned to their parents with no evidence of abuse having been found. Although some of the literature was damning, The family's claims that it had changed its ways back in 1986 were seemingly enough to lead the authorities to believe the children were better off in their familial relationships than in care. The Australian raid was later ruled to be unlawful, with the officer named on the warrants not having attended them though he was required to be there. There's no doubt that the children in Australia were traumatised by their six-day ordeal in custody under questioning and away from their parents but it's not hard to understand why the authorities had concerns. There is clear evidence in the teachings of David Berg around the family's beliefs on children and sexuality, while there are also teachings around it being okay to lie. David Berg had published multiple texts, including one called Deceivers Yet True in 1979, Arose by Another Name in 1984, and To Lie or Not to Lie, That is the Question in 1988, that gave examples of lying when necessary. Ed Preeb had created a comic version of Deceivers Yet True specifically to teach children about lying to the authorities in October of 1989, and later wrote about this, There's no excuse for what I did, and after I left the family, I confessed to the media. In 1993, when I was interviewed by NBC, 
I held up a copy of the Deceivers Yet True comic and said, This comic was created to teach family children to lie, and I wrote it. There also remained great secrecy around the leadership's location at all times, with many followers not even knowing what David looked like, some suspect so that they wouldn't be able to identify him should they exit the group. And members were instructed to pack so-called flea bags, and told how to make a run for it if the authorities, who they saw as enemies, appeared on their doorstep. A former Australian member, Richard, told Liz Hayes for 60 Minutes Australia, I used to be very angry for a long time. Angry at my mother, angry at all the adults in the cult, and angry at a society that sort of let this happen, you know. He recalled his first sexual experience as a five-year-old child, including giving and receiving oral sex with a woman in her 20s. Eva St. John recalled for the program, The most horrific thing that horrified me the most was when a baby was taken to hospital and diagnosed with gonorrhea. That was a real shock to me, and that really freaked me out. A former New Zealand member given the pseudonym Tracy told 60 Minutes, The first thing that we were taught to memorise as a child in the group is a set of pat questions and answers should any government or outside systemite ask you questions about your welfare or the welfare of other people or the way that it operates or what goes on. Things like, you know, were you abused? Did this ever happen? She said that there were friends she witnessed as children having sex with adults, who she then saw on television claiming that nothing like that had ever happened in the sect. Quote, I know if it would have been me in the raids, I would have said the exact same thing. Eventually, France and Argentina would ban the sect from operating communes in their countries. As mentioned earlier, there's a great deal of academic disagreement about whether the family was a harmless new religious movement whose children should never have been removed from their parents, or whether it was a damaging cult that was sexually abusing them. Sociologists Gordon Shepherd and Gary Shepherd, in a paper about the family, wrote that, while perhaps a group like Om Shinrikyo presents an approximation of what society deems a cult, quote, the vast majority of new religious movements are non-violent and sincere, however strange their beliefs may seem to unsympathetic outsiders. While Robert McFarlane's point of view was that, it is difficult to understand why critics of those who claim cult abuse of children is real do not bother to look at the extensive court and other evidence of the myriad cults that have been proven to exist and to abuse children. Sarah Hall for 60 Minutes New Zealand cited letters from David Berg himself, telling a woman that it was perfectly natural for her five-year-old son to have sex with his mother, and that girls should have sex up until menstruation, and then stop so that they wouldn't get pregnant and alert authorities. In her discussion paper looking at a number of different researchers' works, Susan Rain wrote that, The mismanagement of the investigation into the family homes has led many academics to strongly criticise the raids and to reveal some of the abuses they produced. Less evident is a discussion connecting the family's violence against its own members to the ensuing raids. The round of police raids across the world starting in 1992 fed further, of course, into David's narrative of persecution. In November 1992, Mary Berg wrote about her experiences in the family for No Longer Children newsletter a publication put together for ex-members of the family to share their stories. She had left two years prior, at the age of 18, after ending up in a mental hospital for six months and eventually going to live with Deborah Davis. The family was regularly holding annual summit meetings at this time, which sound like a kind of strategic planning session for leaders to review sect policies and structures. Karen would attend these sometimes, with the locations kept highly confidential, but at the 1993 summit in Hungary, she instead sent a so-called Mama Jewels publication. This publication was not for general circulation, and on page 18 it included a note about sexual contact between adults and children. Quote, I'm sorry that we couldn't come out a little more forthrightly in the child abuse statement, bringing out the point that all sex between adults and minors is not bad, sinful, harmful or abusive. However, the problem was that we didn't know how much we could say without putting the family at legal risk. 
We wouldn't have been afraid to admit more if we had known we could do it legally, but we had to be careful and try to protect the family. The way we present this is very delicate, because on the one hand, we can get in big trouble with the system, and on the other hand, if we handle it the wrong way, there is the danger that the family may feel that we are saying that the letters were wrong, and what Dad had to say in those letters was not right and was a mistake. We definitely don't believe that, and we can't afford to give that impression, so we certainly have to avoid that at all costs. We certainly do not want to say that the letters were wrong or to say anything that will infer that they were wrong, because they weren't wrong. End quote. By 1993, according to Gordon and Gary Shepherd, close to 70% of members were under the age of 18. In May of that year, Marisha Spencer exited the family. She was the daughter of Jeremy Spencer, born five years after he had joined the group in a communal home in Brazil. Marisha told the London Evening Standard that she was treated like a sex object from the age of four, the same age she was made to do a striptease that was videotaped and sent to David Berg. According to former member Sam Ajamian, David had provided detailed instructions on how these kinds of videos were to be made. When she was 15 years old, Marisha was sent to live with the British leader of the family, Gideon Scott, and she told the Evening Standard journalists David Macmillan and Gervasi Webb, These were the worst ten months of my life. They used to hit us with a cricket bat, but they drilled holes in it so that it would cut through the air faster and hurt more. I was put on a silence restriction, not allowed to speak for months, and even locked in a caravan for a week and forced to live on just water. In September 1994 in the UK, former member Christina Jones was awarded £5,000 by the Criminal Injuries Board as compensation for the sexual abuse she had endured in the family from the age of three. She told David Cohen for the Evening Standard, By the time I was 12, I'd had sexual relations against my will with about 20 men and older boys. I was told it was sharing God's love. She told Dominic Kennedy for the London Times that she was too frightened to refuse sex as a pre-teen child. Quote, if I ever refused, I would be accused of being out of the spirit and punished. I had to prove myself as being unselfish, as Berg wanted all women to be. Punishments were designed to be humiliating and emotionally traumatic. By now, David Berg was getting on in age, and Karen was doing a majority of the organising with a man named Steve Kelly also known as Peter Amsterdam. David had handpicked Steve as Karen's consort. David Berg died in November of 1994 at the age of 75. It's not clear what he died of other than old age, but he had been drinking a lot in the years prior. Karen and Steve took over the leadership and soon married. Karen was known as Queen or Prophetess and Steve as King Peter. With the change in leadership, over the next few years a number of members left, their personal devotion to David not transferring effectively over to his longtime partner. Also at this time, a custody dispute had made its way through to the High Court of England. The mother of a member wanted custody of her grandchild, citing her daughter's membership of the family and their beliefs and practices relating to children as a significant risk to the child's welfare. The case had been filed in 1992, but the judgment didn't come until May 1995, and all 295 pages of it were released to the public in October of that year. If this judgment related to anything other than a custody case, surely people would be in jail. If you have some time on your hands and want to have a read, I've linked it in the show notes. Be warned that the multiple examples of allegations of child sexual abuse are horrendous. The judge was scathing of any assertion that those in leadership didn't know exactly what was going on and that they had acted as soon as it was discovered. He found ample evidence to show that they had in fact encouraged it. Quote, There is overwhelming evidence that the high leadership within the family has been guilty of child sexual abuse. Though Justice Sir Alan Hilton Ward ruled that the family had engaged in severe corporal punishment and abusive sexual practices with minors, he found that the practices had now been abandoned and eventually awarded custody of the child to her mother, still a member of the sect, after a stay. 
he ordered that the family cease corporal punishment of children in England and reject David Berg's letters that bore partial responsibility for sexually inappropriate behaviour with children. Stephen Kelly, a.k.a. Peter Amsterdam, said in his statement to the judge, quote, The judgment refers in particular to the law of love and the devil hates sex, and we accept that as the author of ideas upon which some members acted to the harm of minors in the family, he must bear responsibility for that harm. Maria and all of us in World Service's leadership also feel the burden of responsibility. Further, in 1980, Father David's statements in his discourse entitled The Devil Hates Sex opened the door for sexual behaviour between adults and minors, such sanctioning being the direct cause of later abusive behaviour by some family members at that time. End quote. How the leaders could talk about some family members acting on these ideas to the harm of minors when David Berg himself had been acting on the ideas with his own granddaughter in their own household and with their full knowledge, must be an example of either cognitive dissonance or intentional misdirection. Former Inner Circle member James Penn wrote, I gradually came to the inescapable conclusion that neither Mo nor Maria nor Peter were ever truly sorry for advocating that adults have sexual contact with minors. They were terribly sorry, however, that after years of dodging the bullets, Lord Justice Ward had finally caught them and forced them to publicly admit that Mo was wrong and responsible for the harm that children had suffered. According to Sam Adjamian's book, quote, Though the family's attempt at covering up their past crimes failed, the judge being able to see through their denials and lies, they, however, succeeded in convincing him that they had changed. In his view, the judge's reliance on a group of uninformed academics, who the former member saw as apologists for the cult, was unfortunate, and on his website he wrote that, The research of these supposed top authorities on cults is inexcusably poor. It is downright laughable. But he did also note that the release of the full judgment document constituted a major expose of the sect. In addition, Academic Stephen A. Kent suggests that the closure of the Victor camps likely came as a result of the close scrutiny from the media and court system. Susan Freeman, daughter of the British spokesperson for the family, Abby Freeman, told David Cohen for the Evening Standard of being sexually abused by a 15-year-old boy when she was nine and by two 40-year-old men when she was 16. That would have been in 1996. She said how she was taught that women shouldn't say no to men who wanted sex and that she tried wearing baggy clothes and not washing to stop their advances, but it didn't always work. In the 2005 article, she said, Those men are still in the family in the UK, even though they openly admitted what they did. And she also said, This sexual abuse is not just in the past, as my mother tells journalists, as my mother made me tell journalists. The family would regularly claim that there had never been a conviction against them relating to child abuse, and that the various court cases were further examples of persecution. But looking into the details of the many cases brings up examples of children being ordered to be presented and members of the family refusing to comply, extradition orders against members that were ignored, and settlement deals that kept the details out of court. Stephen A. Kent also noted that with the custody case, the family had, quote, burned controversial documents, published public denials of sexual impropriety between children and adults, and created media homes containing carefully selected teens who rehearsed probable questions and appropriate answers before reporters or academics arrived. And with a case in Australia, according to Alex Messina, who reported on it for The Age, quote, a secret cabinet decision made to end litigation involving the religious group The Family overruled the Secretary of the Department of Health and Community Services, Dr John Patterson. According to sources close to the case, the political directive to end the child protection case was in spite of Dr Patterson's view that the case should proceed. The decision was made over a month ago and a secret deadline was imposed for a settlement. It was exceeded as negotiations dragged on, but the deal was sealed on Friday last week. It is believed that Dr Patterson maintains the view that the department's evidence was strong and would have justified the protective concerns for 86 children from the family, formerly known as the Children of God. 
sources said the deal was widely considered a total capitulation within the department. End quote. Many ex-members say that it was very difficult to obtain a conviction with the ever-changing pseudonyms used in the sect, various countries' statutes of limitations, and the secrecy around members' locations, which moved continually. Former New Zealand member Natalie told 60 Minutes that she had grown up in 27 countries. Floor Edwards wrote for HuffPost, By the time I was 12, I could count 24 places I had lived on three continents. Another former child member who left at 16 told Lisa Dabschek for Marie Claire Australia, I lived in 12 different countries while I was in the family, and each of those is a different jurisdiction. The onus of proof demands more than what I can say, and a lot of courts don't recognise that a child has the capacity to remember those things. Also, as soon as you go into the cult, you're assigned a Bible name, and these change all the time. The family also made claims of numerous psychologists having assessed sect children and finding them to be completely well-adjusted, with no evidence of child abuse. Ex-member Sarah Martin told Lisa Dabschek, First of all, we didn't even know what molestation or abuse was. We were told from day one that this was normal and that people in the outside world were evil and were trying to destroy us. Secondly, we were specifically trained in what to say in those circumstances. For example, when I got out, I was interviewed by a therapist and a psychiatrist. After speaking with me, they said, she's so stable, she's so well balanced. But I knew I wasn't. I just knew what to say to appear that way. I was just scared and wanted them to get out of the house, so I calmly told them what they wanted to hear. It's very difficult to have read the literature and words of David Berg and the many, many accounts by ex-members of what they went through and not believe that child abuse was rife within the children of God and the family and that it was sanctioned and encouraged from the top. By 1995, the family was seeing many second-generation members leave to pursue careers within the system, rejecting their upbringing. A statement from spokesperson Claire Borowick said, The family's charter, first published in 1995, as well as several internal publications, advise parents to assume responsibility for assisting their children through what can be a difficult transition from a close, nurturing, faith-based support system to an independent, secular lifestyle. This obviously sounds much better than the shunning that occurs with many other cultic groups when members leave, though not everyone feels that this was their experience in exiting. The 1995 Charter, according to an archive of thefamily.org, quote, codified the beliefs, rights and responsibilities of full-time family members. The primary purpose of the Charter is to provide a well-defined and easy-to-understand broad governing structure. Within this structure, ample opportunity is provided for family members to follow what they believe is God's will for them personally and to freely operate according to their own initiative. It was called the Love Charter. Karen also started putting out instructions that year that followers were being asked by Jesus to have sex with him. And for men that wouldn't be male-on-male sex because they were to imagine themselves as women while they masturbated to the visualisation of Jesus. In March 1996, Pubs Purge 2 was initiated. Quote, We are truly grateful for all of your help and faithfulness in this matter and trust that our homes will be less vulnerable to the enemy's attacks once this purge has been completed. In the late 1990s, the family singers were even performing at the White House during various seasonal holidays. And in the year 2000, Sam Ajamian wrote to Bill and Hillary Clinton to tell them about the musicians' controversial religious practices. Quote, Let me be so bold as to suggest that rather than having these young people come to sing, the White House should be more interested and concerned in rescuing them from the clutches of this group. By the turn of the century, Faith Berg had been put out of the sect by Stephen Kelly. And according to Gordon Shepherd and Gary Shepherd, the family had over 10,000 members in 800 communal homes across 88 countries. David Ito left the family in January 2001 with his fiancée, Elixia Munamel. 
and legally changed his name to Richard Peter Smith, though he would become known as Ricky Rodriguez. He wrote in a letter to his mother and Peter, We cannot continue to condone or be party to what we feel is an abusive, manipulative organisation that teaches false doctrine. In the same year that Ricky left the family, former member Julia McNeil started up a site called movingon.org, in which those who'd left Children of God or the family could share their stories. She said, For better or for worse, we share this legacy. Perhaps it's true that we can't escape the past or our upbringing, but the cruelest irony of all would be to have to fight the demons we share alone. The site quickly grew to have over 5,000 members. Ricky contributed some of his stories, as did many others over the next 7.5 years. He shared his experiences as a child and his perspective on Mary's treatment in the Philippines. Eva St. John posted that for her, quote, The last straw was when my son was belted across a room by my shepherd, causing my son's head and face to become swollen, and I was not permitted to take him to get checked by a doctor. Even though I was already being silenced and on a victor's program, I was in a fury and wrote a long letter of protest to the higher-ups, something virtually unheard of in TF at the time, saying that this was totally unacceptable. They summarily excommunicated me for the crime of being an incorrigible independent thinker and literally put me on the street penniless with a new baby and two little children, knowing no one and with no place to go. Ricky asked Karen in his letter for the sum of $36,000 as some form of compensation for his upbringing to help him and Alexia get started in their new life. As he said... To put it kindly, I had an inadequate education, I was only allowed to get to 7th grade. I have no diplomas, degrees or even a GED. I have no real-world job experience or marketable job skills. I don't even have any job references from previous employers to assure them that I'm a dependable person. Karen refused to give him the money. As Lisa Dabscheck wrote for Marie Claire Australia, One of the main grievances of ex-members who say they have been abused is what they feel is a lack of genuine accountability from the family. Despite a general apology that refers to instances in which some individuals did not always strictly follow the principles and guidelines of the laws of love, no internal investigation to find and punish the perpetrators has ever been set up, and despite repeated requests, the real names of suspects have never been provided to ex-members. By 2004, Karen was still running the family alongside Steve, and they decided the group should now be known as the Family International. Their movements remained under close wraps. Ricky had continued to struggle in the years since he left the group, and desperately wanted to get his half-sister Techie out. But to do this he would have to find her. He and Alexia were living separately but spoke often, and he heard that his mother had been through Tucson, Arizona over the Christmas of 2003 to see his grandparents, so he decided to move there to see if he could locate her. He had given up any hope of the authorities holding his abusers to account. Ricky Rodriguez recorded a video in Tucson on the 7th of January 2005. In it, as he loaded a handgun, he said he knew that the things he was about to do would be fairly shocking and he wanted to explain some of them. He described how he'd been thinking about suicide ever since he was in teen training. Here's Ricky. I feel that that would be the selfish thing to do. That would be the way, the quitter's way out. Because, yeah, I'm sort of quitting right now, but in a way I'm not, because I'm not doing it the way I want to do it. I'm trying to do something lasting. Something that if, God forbid, in the next life does go on, that I can look back on this if I'm able to and know that, okay, maybe I didn't technically do the right thing, but I tried to do something to help. In the video, he explains that he wants to find his mother and Peter, i.e. Steve, and that to do so, he has to get information, and that he isn't trained in torture methods, so he'll have to make do. He talks about how if every day had gotten a little better, then things may have been different. But instead, every day got worse than the one that preceded it. He said of his mother and Peter, Aren't they the real terrorists? Terrorising little kids, driving them to suicide. Isn't that like murdering them, basically? 
The following day, Ricky met with Angela Smith, who remained a close associate of his mother. He took her back to his apartment and then stabbed her to death. Ricky then drove himself to Blythe, California, called Elixia to tell her what he'd done, and then died by suicide, shooting himself with his semi-automatic. He was 29 years old. The shocking murder-suicide brought media attention to the Family International once again. Former members said that they knew of at least 25 other deaths by suicide over the previous 13 years, of young people who had been raised in the Children of God. Spokesperson for the family, Claire Borowick, said that this was an intentional exaggeration. In a public statement, she also noted, Considering that the national suicide rate was pegged at 12 out of 100,000 per year in 2001, We don't believe that the number of suicides that have occurred over the past 15 years in our movement reaches the national average as per National Institute for Mental Health. Considering that 32,000 people have left our movement since its inception, even these inflated numbers hardly fall within the national average. Alexia said of her husband's actions to the New York Times' Laurie Goodstein, I'm not justifying what he did, and I'm not saying it was right, because it was a life that was taken. But I want people to understand that what he did was out of pain and hurt and years of that pain building up and not being able to have that weight lifted. Former Australian member Richard told Liz Hayes for 60 Minutes Australia, I think what he did was criminal, but I sympathise with him completely, you know. When I watch that tape, it's heart-wrenching. To see him in that much pain, just to see the pain, because I can relate to it, and I can relate to the anger he was feeling. You want somebody to pay for what happened to you. Claire Borowick said that Ricky had never been taken advantage of and, quote, rather he was allowed to explore his sexuality freely. He was allowed to explore as a young boy what comes naturally, and usually in our society we do not allow such exploration. The Moving On website held accounts alleging that Claire Borowick's ex-husband, Jose Manuel Sabatasso, was one of the worst child abusers there has ever been in the family and an article in the Toronto Star had claims from a former member of being raped at the age of 13 by him, in an act condoned by his then-wife. Jose was never charged with any of these alleged crimes. The family created a website at rickyrodriguez.com, the same month of Ricky's death, and on a statement page that is still up today, it says, Some of those who have left us are propagating stories that child abuse is common in the family. This is false. The family has a zero-tolerance policy towards abusive treatment of minors, punishable by excommunication, a policy which has been in place since 1988. It continues with the line that David Berg's teachings were misinterpreted, and that the resulting zero-tolerance policy has been successful in protecting minors in our communities from abuse. The South Pacific leader of the family, Paul Hartingdon, told Sarah Hall for 60 Minutes New Zealand about Ricky, quote, I know that he had a wonderful childhood in many respects, and if at some later stage someone got in his ear and told him, oh, you've had a horrible childhood and look how badly you were treated and all of that, and he was beaten down enough in that way, I think that would have the effect that it did on him. He said that former members were bitter and that they should be trying to see positively what their experiences had been. It's interesting to compare the perspective of some in the older generation who originally joined the Children of God and completely cut off their parents in the process. Deborah Davis wrote, They were mad at their parents. They wanted to hear that their parents were all wrong, too materialistic, hypocritical and so on. And yet, in some cases, when the next generation tried to tell them what they had done wrong in turn, the appeals fell on deaf ears. Former member Susan Freeman told David Cohen for the Evening Standard that she too had attempted suicide, and that she understood why children who grew up in the family would want to kill themselves and why they would want to kill their mothers, though she said she would never harm her mother even though she had destroyed her life. Musician Christopher Owens, who was the singer-songwriter of the band Girls, grew up in the Children of God and has always been very open about his past depression and suicidal thoughts, as well as his issues with addiction. 
In his June 2005 Rolling Stone article entitled The Life and Death of the Children of God Messiah, which I recommend reading and is linked in the show notes, Peter Wilkinson wrote of David's granddaughter Mary. Today she is a frail 33-year-old addicted to methamphetamine, turning tricks on Southern California beaches and struggling to stay alive. She's just given up on life, Manny's mother says. She's committing suicide without committing suicide. She's doing it slowly. Although Mary did eventually get her life together, she passed away on the 16th of November 2017 from respiratory failure at the age of 45. Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Cal State Fullerton, Jeanette Solano, told Ben Brazil for the Los Angeles Times in 2019 that The suicide rate is very high for former childhood members, and the loss of parental influence in their lives forever shapes them. She also said that addiction amongst former child members is common. MovingOn.org founder Julia McNeil wrote on the 1st of February 2009 about the website's closure, that running it for 7.5 years had been a privilege, but that, quote, As we who were born and raised in the family know so well, in the absence of the safety net of a caring family and basic support, gaining education, career experience, financial assets and solid healthy relationships are critical to our stability. Many of us left the family for the right to pursue these things, and because we chose to no longer sacrifice our own needs for a cause or the demands of others. This was and is the case for me. She sadly passed away from cancer a few short years later at the age of 37. After launching MovingOn.org, she had also started up the Safe Passage Foundation, a non-profit providing resources, support and advocacy for youth raised in restrictive, isolated or high-demand communities otherwise known as cults. Its work continues to this day. As recently as April 2009, the family's official website stated that although they no longer practiced flirty fishing, we believe the scriptural principles behind the ministry remain sound. The Family International's website states that in 2010 it reorganised as an online community. The reason given for the disbanding of its communal-based organisational model that year is that following a two-year evaluation of its structure, quote, the Family International undertook a comprehensive reorganisation known as the Reboot. This reorganisation resulted in the adoption of a new organisational model and the closure of the majority of TFI's previous communal centres in order to better achieve our purpose of reaching the world with the gospel message and to allow for greater diversity. There have been other repercussions outside of the sect as well. In 2011, a 30-year-old Brisbane man who was raised in the family pleaded guilty to 51 charges including three counts of sex with a minor, eight counts of using the internet to procure or groom minors for sex, and more than 30 counts related to indecent treatment and exposing a child under 16 to indecent materials or acts. The crimes had taken place over the previous two years in New Zealand, when he was 28 and 29, and involved girls aged between 12 and 15. His barrister tendered a psychological report that suggested that the defendant wasn't a pedophile, but had a sex addiction and a skewered perspective on who it was okay to have sexual contact with due to his upbringing. He was sentenced to five years in jail. Today, the Family International's website says that it is an online Christian community of 1,700 members committed to sharing the message of God's love with people around the globe. Karen Zerby's website still lists her as its spiritual and administrative coordinator, alongside her husband Steve Kelly. Former members are keeping an eye on charities such as the Family Care Foundation, set up by members of the Family International and including Steve Kelly's brother Ken Kelly and his wife Christian Mlott on its board. It could well be that they are doing some good work, but Sam Ajamian wrote of his concerns on his website, quote, Hiding under the cover of these organisations, members of the cult have been able to return back to the countries from which they were expelled. Child abusers who should have been locked up long ago for the many crimes they have committed not only are free to walk the streets, but are providing direct services to children. 
Tax filings on behalf of the organisation show a variety of humanitarian aid projects, but also mention something called the SRMPT, or Spiritual Retreat and Missionary Training Program. While statements on the Family International's Our Beliefs page indicate that some of the free love history remains current in the group, for example, God's law of love is the ultimate fulfilment of biblical law, including the Ten Commandments, as it fulfills the intent of such laws. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, Galatians 5.14. We therefore believe that through Christ's salvation and his law of love, Christians are released from the Mosaic laws in the Old Testament and are no longer required to observe them. Instead, they are held to a higher law, Christ's law of love, which should guide all their interactions with others. And... We believe that God created and ordained human sexuality, and we consider it a natural part of life. The Bible says that God told the first man and woman to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, Genesis 1.28. God saw everything that he had made, which included the first man and woman as well as their bodies and sexuality, and indeed it was very good, Genesis 1.31. It is our belief that heterosexual relations, when practiced as God-ordained and intended between consenting adults, are a pure and natural wonder of God's creation and permissible according to Scripture. Article 5 of its charter states that A member of the Family International who is a parent is responsible to love and care for his or her children, raise them in a godly manner, impart to them a knowledge of God, See that their physical, educational, spiritual, medical and emotional needs are supplied to the best of their ability, and protect them from all forms of abuse, including physical, sexual or emotional. The welfare and protection of children is of vital importance to the Family International. All members are expected to abide by the policies outlined in the Child Protection Policy of the Family International. The Child Protection Policy states, Every child has the right to be protected from abuse and neglect of any kind, whether physical, emotional, sexual or educational. We consider that the abusive treatment of a child is not only a crime, but a sin in the eyes of God. The Family International has a zero-tolerance policy regarding the abusive treatment of children and will permanently expel any member who violates this policy. Members are subject to the laws of their country of residence regarding reporting crimes of this nature to the appropriate authorities. The Family International is committed to the well-being of children and considers it the moral responsibility of any adult caring for minors to protect them from harm. On the history page of the Family International's website, there's mention of, quote, a colourful history, with no specifics. On davidberg.org, maintained by the Family International, as of early 2020, there are 38 Mo letters available of the 3,000 that David had written over his leadership. The homepage refers to his controversial views and says that David retracted his more radical theological speculations regarding sexuality in the late 1980s, and these writings were officially renounced and removed from circulation. There's no mention of them ever having caused any harm. In the wake of Ricky's shocking actions, a number of former children of the family wrote an open letter dated the 19th of January 2005. At last count, it had been signed by some 170 ex-members. As far as I'm aware, none of their requests were ever granted. But I want to leave this episode with their words. These past few days have been a very difficult and painful time for all of us. We wish to offer our condolences to the family and friends of Angela Smith, as well as to friends and family of Ricky Rodriguez, who are members of the family. There has been a great deal of media attention regarding the circumstances of Ricky and Angela's death, and we have been concerned that issues may have been clouded by anger and pain. Ricky's actions and their deaths have come as a great shock to us, and we know they must have been to you also. Yet in the midst of this tragedy, we have hope that constructive solutions will come to bear over anger and grief. It is extremely painful for those of us who knew and loved Ricky to think of how deep his pain and despair must have been to be driven to such extreme measures. None of us condone the violent actions Ricky took. It's so difficult to understand why this occurred and many of us wonder if we could have done more to provide support and help for our friend. It is our sincerest wish that we can promote healing and hope to prevent such a tragedy from ever occurring again. 
many of us have parents and siblings who remain members of the family. We spent years of our lives growing up with you. We are not nameless strangers. We are not the enemy or the devil. We are your children and siblings. Many of us still believe in God, but many of us were terribly hurt and abused while in the family. We are suffering and hurting as a result of this. We want to heal and break any potential cycles of abuse. Will you help us? While some of us have asked for this before, we want to clearly and directly ask you now. Will the administrative arm of the Family International, World Services, work with us and law enforcement agencies to investigate the full extent of the abuse of children born and raised in the family? Will World Services cooperate with law enforcement officials to identify abusers so that they can be held accountable for their actions? Our goal in asking this is not to cause unnecessary pain to family members, nor do we want to hinder the good and charitable work for which many are engaged. Many want to make the world a better place. We have no desire to impede such efforts, nor to infringe on the fundamental right to believe and practice one's religion, which does not harm others or impede their fundamental freedoms. We have read statements made by the family's spokesperson, Claire Borowick, stating that the family administrators are willing to cooperate with authorities in investigating cases of abuse among its membership and encourage their members to do so also. We are encouraged by that position of the family. We simply ask for that stated cooperation on behalf of the family in assisting us in bringing those responsible for abuses to us as children forward and to justice. Thanks to the cooperation of the family administrative branch, we believe that innocent parties will certainly be spared further unnecessary pain. What we do hope to accomplish is to determine which individuals were criminally involved in the abuse of second-generation members and ex-members and ensure that they are held accountable. We do not wish to create a climate of hysteria that might distract from this main purpose. There are many people in the family, including some of our own families and friends, who are innocent of any crime and were never truly aware or involved in abusive activity. Those individuals have no cause for concern. Much of the worst abuse that we suffered occurred many years ago, prior to our departures from the family. Nevertheless, the abusers are still obligated to account for their actions. We encourage them to come forward and take responsibility. This may be difficult and painful, but we encourage them with the biblical promise that he who conceals his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Proverbs 28.13 Now is their opportunity to come clean and take personal responsibility for their actions and the harm that they have caused. We believe that, broadly speaking, we have the same goals as many in the family. We want a better world with healing and justice. We have struggled with deep wounds and pain for far too long. We believe that the truth will make us free. John 8.32 Please, let's work together to tell the truth in this matter. Please help us to make things right. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod. I've currently suspended payments from April 2020 onwards as we face some difficult times across the world, so do feel free to pledge, but no payments will come out until we're on the other side of this pandemic. One-off donations are still available via PayPal. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele, and researched by Haley Gray and myself. Music was by Joe Gould. Information sources are listed on our website at www.ltaspod.com. A huge source of information for this episode was provided by xfamily.org, a collaboratively edited encyclopedia about the Family International and Children of God. Quote, Due to the secrecy that shrouds many of the family's activities, we work together to collate and divulge information. 
It's an incredible resource, making many primary materials available to the public. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 3 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out some of their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from sport to gaming to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. This is the final episode for Season 3, so thank you so much for joining me this season. I'll be continuing to write and research for Season 4 as I take a bit of a break, and I'm likely to have a bonus episode or two coming your way to tide you over in the meantime as well. Please stay safe and look after yourselves mentally, emotionally and physically as much as you can during this period. Wherever you are in the world, it's a strange thing to be experiencing together. If you're able to, please check in on each other. And through the difficulties, I hope you can find a supportive community that isn't a cult. In the off-season, do drop me a line if you have anything you'd like to share, or even just to say hi. There's a contact form on the website. I really appreciate your time listening to these stories and perhaps taking the information to help others understand some of the dynamics around cults and their victims. Catch you again soon for Season 4. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.